This episode is supported by Vic Health, Victoria's health promotion agency. For more information about the work of Vic Health, go to vichealth.vic.gov.au. I feel lucky that I still have a job, even though it puts me at very high risk. But for people that want to help, you know, your job is actually to stay at home because staying at home is the one thing that you can do to protect people out in the community, whether that's vulnerable people, our elderly people or people with comorbidities, your healthcare workers that are looking after you and making sure that you don't overwhelm the system. So my message would be to stay at home if you can. Welcome to our special COVID-19 series of In Good Health, where we try to help guide you through life in this pandemic. I'm Dr. Sandro. And I'm Dewey Cook. In this episode, you're going to hear from a couple of doctors working at the front line. One of them is a specialist in Melbourne, that's her that you heard at the beginning, and the other is a GP in regional New South Wales. The reason we want to share their stories with you is so that you can understand what's at stake for healthcare workers like them and why it's so important for you to stay home and stay safe for everybody's sake. But before we get there, Sandro, you've been inundated with questions about COVID-19 from the public recently. So let's explore some of the things that people want to know. You've been asked things like, if you get the coronavirus and you fully recover from it and you catch it again, is your body immune to the virus? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. People may develop an immunity to COVID-19 after contracting it, but it's really too early to know for sure. So the safest thing is to stay home as much as possible and practice social distancing and good hand hygiene, whether you've had COVID-19 or not. And people also want to know, like, what's the safest way to co-parent? Is it okay for the child to go between the two parents' homes, for example? So provided both parents are feeling well and are staying at home as much as possible and practicing social distancing, and of course, washing their hands often, it's okay for the child to spend time at both parents' homes. Hmm. And what about like takeaway food? Can the virus stay on the packaging that your food comes in? It's okay to eat takeaway food, but my advice is to get your food out of its packaging once you come in the door, pop it onto a plate or a bowl, and then throw the packaging away, wash your hands thoroughly with soap for at least 20 seconds, and then enjoy your takeaway. So, Sandra, I know that you're getting also lots of questions via Instagram and Twitter, um, and one that I was really interested in is, can you catch coronavirus from patting somebody else's dog? Yeah, so look, there haven't been any cases of a human catching coronavirus from uh, a pet, but everyone is so on edge at the moment and, of course, wanting to maintain the social distancing. So it's probably not a good idea to be patting other people's dogs and also making sure your dog's not going near other people. And any time you are touching an animal, we'd recommend you wash your hands thoroughly afterwards. Mm, All those dogs being walked all over my neighbourhood, I'm sure that they're (laughs) desperate for some more cuddles. (laughs) Okay, and here's another question that I think is probably something that's on a lot of people's mind. Someone's asked you that their best friend lives alone and works alone. Is it okay to walk together so that she feels connection? Yeah, look, at the moment, it is okay to exercise in pairs, even if you don't live with the other person, but you need to maintain all of the social distancing recommendations, wash your hands after spending time together, and if you or they don't feel well, then definitely don't be spending time with it with one another. 
Yeah, and I think that really reinforces what we've talked about in our first episode was just this idea that physical distance is an act of love, really, um, and it's on all of us to help with that message. And that connects to this next interview that I'm going to play for you guys. I spoke with a doctor on the front line and like most healthcare workers, COVID-19 is now part of her daily discussion affecting how she does her job and even how she lives when she's not at work. But I'll let her explain. And, you know, one more thing, uh, just to make it clear in case you guys haven't picked up on it already, Sandra and I are doing all of our interviews and even our own conversations on the phone. So forgive us if it's not the clean studio quality that you're used to, but we're working really hard to try to get this stuff to you as quickly as possible. And this is the safest way that we can do it. So I'm an anaesthetist working in a public hospital. So tell me about how you are preparing personally for the COVID-19 pandemic. One of our main roles as anaesthetists is obviously anaesthetising patients for surgery. And one of the big things that has happened over the last week or so is we're trying to scale back non-urgent surgery and just do um, emergency surgery and elective cases, and that's to preserve our personal protective equipment, but also to ensure that we're not being overworked and being able to have time to prepare for the actual impending crisis that we're seeing coming. And what sort of practical steps have you had to make in your personal life to protect yourself? Uh, so in terms of what I'm doing personally, so obviously observing the government social distancing measures, I'm hardly leaving the house unless I'm going to work or maybe just going grocery shopping once a week. So for me, I would treat every interaction I have outside or with another person as a potential time that the virus could transmit itself. We're very worried about transmitting the virus to our families and friends. So I'm quite lucky that I already live alone. But even even then, I've decided probably from about a fortnight ago that I would stop seeing my family. So we're just video conferencing and calling each other. And then there's the issue of not wanting to bring the virus home. So I know some healthcare workers are looking for accommodation where they can move out from their families so that they're not giving the virus to their families um, we're taking pretty extreme measures like making sure we get changed when we get to work and changed when we go home so it's not on our clothes and scrubs. I have a setup where I'll leave my shoes in the garage so I don't bring them into the house and as soon as I get home, I go straight to the shower and put my work clothes into the washing, practising, you know, hand hygiene, all of that. What's it like for you not to see your family? Um, it's hard because I'm very close to them, so I would normally see them at least every week for dinner, but they, they understand. And, you know, as Sandra was saying, distance is an act of love. So um, I have actually found that calling and FaceTiming has, has still been a good way of keeping up socialisation. Obviously it's hard because you're not seeing them in person, but, you know, my parents are approaching their 60s and the last thing I wanted to be doing is putting them at risk. And you said that you and a lot of your colleagues have sort of accepted that at some point you may contract the virus. Tell me what, what it's like, I suppose, to go to work then with that feeling and how are you guys managing that feeling when you're at work? Um, well, I would say everyone's very anxious. Uh, so we're all making sure that 
we're taking the right steps in terms of hand hygiene, but also for us probably our most important line of defence is our personal protective equipment. What we actually have to wear and put on depends on the risks that we're exposed to or the procedure that we're doing. Um, But we're, we're at a stage now where we're really trying to make sure that we do that properly because I'm not sure whether you've been aware, but that's been a great source of anxiety amongst healthcare workers, making sure that we do have adequate personal protective equipment to wear as well. So if there's a scenario where you do have a COVID-19 patient, what are the steps basically before you're involved? So for anaesthetists, we will generally only be mainly involved with patients that have severe pneumonia with COVID-19 and our roles in that will be the specialists that will be asked to intubate these patients. So if you have a patient with severe pneumonia with COVID-19, and they get to the point where normal ward oxygen is not able to sustain a safe oxygen level in their blood to travel around to the rest of their body, they're going to be in a position where they need a ventilator. And to be put on a ventilator, you need to have a breathing tube, which is what we call an endotracheal tube, to be put in. Um, So our job as anaesthetists is to do this procedure which we call intubation, which is essentially to induce you into a coma and then put a metal instrument into your mouth and find the right place to put this breathing tube. And we we do that every day for general anaesthetics. It's something that we're used to doing a lot. I think what puts us at higher stakes is obviously doing it while we're wearing layers and layers of protective equipment and, you know, having the anxiety of whether that's going to protect us. And the other thing is we're probably one of the highest risk groups of people to being exposed to this virus because we're looking right into the airways of people with COVID-19 and putting the tube right into what some people call the viral soup right into their lungs to to make sure that we can put them on a ventilator after that. You've had a moment recently, haven't you, where you have had to take isolation measures a bit more seriously. Can you tell me about that? Yes, so I was in isolation for a few days last week uh, because I developed a cough um, and now under the Victorian guidelines, a healthcare worker that um, has respiratory symptoms qualifies to get tested. So obviously I didn't want to put myself in a position where I was putting my patients or colleagues at risk if I did have the virus. So I went to get tested and was in isolation for a few days before I found out that I had a negative result and was able to return to work. And at the moment, though, you still have your day job, right? Your regular job to get through. How much has COVID-19 kind of taken over the way you approach your work? Um, It's taken over it in a pretty significant way because, I mean, we will still see patients that need emergency surgery. So, you know, if you get appendicitis or you're at home and decide that you're doing a do-it-yourself home project and injure yourself and you still need surgery for that or you have a fall and fracture your hip, you'll still need surgery for that. Or if you have cancer um, that needs to be urgently resected, you'll still need to have that done and we're still involved in the case, in, in the care of those patients. But we're all very vigilant as well, especially as community transmission increases that Every contact we have with patients is potentially putting us at risk of being exposed to the virus. Um, I feel lucky that I still have a job, even though it puts me at very high risk. Um, But for people that want to help, you know, your job is actually to stay at home because staying at home is the one thing that you can do 
as a member of the community, and this is thinking on a community level rather than your rights as an individual to protect people out in the community, whether that's vulnerable people, elderly people or people with comorbidities, your healthcare workers that are looking after you and making sure that you don't overwhelm the system by having too many people that require our care at the same time. So my message would be to stay at home if you can. Now, while hospital and emergency specialists will be the ones seeing COVID-19 affected patients who are seriously ill, it'll be GPs who may be the first port of call for anyone who thinks that they might have the virus or even those who are infected but don't know it yet. So that's who you'll hear from next. Dr. Carolyn West is a GP from Sydney and you've probably heard of her on the telly a bit over the years. She was even on a show with Sandro called Ask the Doctor. When I spoke to her, she was working on an emergency placement a few hours outside of Sydney in an area with a large elderly population. So I've been a GP for more than 30 years, so I've seen a a reasonable amount in my time, but I've never seen anything like this. And I think that a lot of practices have been set up over the last couple of decades to really deal with a tsunami of chronic disease things like heart disease, diabetes, mental health disorders. And this infectious disease with the pandemic with COVID-19 has completely blindsided us in many ways because our practices are just not set up to deal with a a complete onslaught of infectious diseases. So because this virus is, is so infectious, there's also a high risk for us working on the front line. And that can be pretty scary When we're out in the community, obviously, you can practice social distancing and I'm really mindful of keeping that one and a half, two metres between myself and someone else, if possible, at all times, washing my hands all the time and and sort of observing that, that sense of isolating socially. In work, though, a lot of those things have to go out of the window because life still goes on and in general practice, you st- especially if you're working in a more isolated area, you're still going to be dealing with people that have fallen over and cracked their head open and they need stitches or somebody that has, has got chest pain and maybe having a heart attack, somebody that needs their, their leg wound dressed or their ulcer addressed. And so all of those instances involve being quite close to people. And at this stage, because COVID is one of those infections where you can present as being asymptomatic and well, yet you could be highly infectious. And so we're stuck with a scenario where we've got to be actually quite close to people often through the day and you just don't know at this stage who's going to be infectious and it's getting to that tipping point where it's uncomfortable because every day you come to work, as the case numbers start to build in the community, you wonder, well, I've been very close to this person I don't have enough protective gear to wear the full protective um, equipment for every consult because we simply don't have enough. So you're already having to triage in your head when you use the protective gear and when you don't. And and I suppose that we're sort of having to deal with lots of other issues medically that are not related to COVID but put us in direct line of contact with people. And you're just crossing your fingers going, gosh, I hope they're not infectious. I feel like you probably accept that there's a certain level of risk when you take on the profession, right? But does the risk feel different to you in this moment because of that hidden asymptomatic nature that the, that it, that the virus could present itself with? The stakes are much higher with COVID than anything 
else that I've seen before in that if you become unwell, you can become seriously unwell and require hospitalisation, an ICU bed, a ventilator perhaps, um, and you could be on death's door fairly quickly. And I guess that a lot of people will also get it fairly mildly or maybe not get symptoms at all. But, you know, I'm a 57-year-old GP, so I'm in a moving towards the older age group. So the risks for me increase and I'm very mindful that as a health worker on the front line, there is a risk that comes with the job. Having said that, I guess it's one of those things that I feel that I have children, I have an elderly mother, and I think to myself, well, I would really like someone in the community, in the healthcare system, to be looking after them if they should need it during this corona pandemic. And so I think, well, I need to do my bit too. You know, I need to be looking after somebody's child or somebody's mother. So if I can do my bit in general practice, that's certainly what I intend to do, even though there is some risk. And I think that that is that sort of idea, that sense of stepping forward when there's a crisis is something that many health professionals do. It's in their DNA. I guess they're wired to help and they're, they're wired to step in and, and lend a hand when they can, even if there is some risk. What would be the one thing that you would really hope people take away from everything you've just described? that they can do to help protect you as well as themselves? I think during this crisis that everybody can do their little bit and that is really following clear guidelines on washing your hands, social distancing. If you get unwell, phone your GP, don't rock up to the surgery. And I guess displays of kindness go a long way to allow us to sort of connect with that sense of humanity. I think that when things are so grim, it's really easy to feel overwhelmed And one of those little patches of sunshine can just be that in amongst all of this chaos and all of this terrible time, people are also doing extraordinary things. Neighbours are showing enormous amounts of generosity and friendship to people they may never have met uh, or know well. Um, Medical staff and people that work in the medical system from the receptionists to the people delivering food, they're they're all playing their part in this and, and that's something that's kind of heartwarming as well. So I think if everybody can do that little bit and take it seriously, that's going to make a huge difference to flattening the curve. And, yeah, I think that we still don't know a lot about how this is going to pan out. So it's also having a sense of patience that um, it's not all going to be solved by next week and that we we need to realise that there may be a lot of pain and suffering in the short term, but locking things down and really reducing the amount of contact between people is really going to slow the spread of this virus. Even if you feel really well, you could be contagious. So the more we can really include those messages of social distancing and how valuable that is for all of us to participate in, the better. So I suppose, Dewey, the takeaway for me is just how critically important it is to do our part you know, there are these incredible doctors, nurses, allied health, but all of the people who keep a hospital running, mm. the cooks, the cleaners, the drivers, they're all putting their lives on the line every day to try and protect us, to treat us and to slow the epidemic and to save lives. And I think just like they're doing their part and they're absolute heroes, we need to do our part. We need to continue to do what we can to slow the disease to make sure that the healthcare system's not overwhelmed and to make sure that those frontline doctors, nurses and, and healthcare workers 
are able to stay safe. And that comes back to social distancing. It comes back to staying at home as much as possible. It comes back to making the really hard decisions to, you know, maybe not have some of our services open over the next few weeks and months. Mm. And being patient when our favourite restaurant is not serving food or we can't get our coffee where we usually buy it or having to make sacrifices and compromises in our everyday life because these heroes are making massive sacrifices for all of us every day. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we talk about this a lot, this this idea of flattening the curve, right? That's what it really feeds into, doesn't it, Sandra? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what it's about. The flattening the curve, this is the front line, literally, of that curve. Mm. It's about slowing the virus spreading through the community. It's about having less people becoming sick at once. It's about not overwhelming our health system. It's about less people dying, but it's also about protecting our healthcare workers. It's about not having them overwhelmed. It's about them being able to then get the protection, the personal protective equipment and mm. all of the other things that they will be able to use and access and will be able to manufacture in time if we can slow this virus down. Mm. And look, we know as well that because things are changing so rapidly that it's hard sometimes to keep up to date with the most relevant information. Yeah. But there have been a couple of pretty important developments, I think, on that front in recent days. And one is that the Australian government's got a new WhatsApp out, and that's actually really effective. I, I signed up for it at the weekend. It's very fast, and it's a great way to um, just stay up to date. You can have a series of different selections of where, what sort of information you want to receive, and it will send it to you, basically. And then there's also a COVID app now with much the same thing. So if you're struggling to make sense of stuff and know what is the most appropriate way to live your life, I suppose, right now, there are a couple of pretty safe and updatable options for you that you can use. Yeah. And, and in addition to that, continue to check out your state's uh, own in information and recommendations because the recommendations in each state are slightly different. So making sure that you're accessing that information as well. Okay, Sandro, so I guess since we've been, you know, living at home more and trying to put more social distance between us and the people in our lives, we've been obviously shopping a lot less, either doing a once a week shop or I've started getting like veggie boxes from a bunch of the restaurants that are now repurposing themselves as fruit and vegetable distributors. Um but, you know, sometimes you get a sad carrot in there. Sometimes the vegetables, I don't really know what to do with like all of that corn. What are you cooking at the moment? Well, what I've got on the stove at the moment is something that will use any vegetables you have in that box. It will uh, feed 10 or it will yeah. feed two. It freezes well, it refrigerates for a week, and it is super delicious. <laughs> and it's, of course, the classic Italian minestrone soup. Yeah. So you can basically put any vegetables you want. Start by frying off or sweating off onions, leeks, summer veg like zucchinis or capsicum even, but also really great with beans and legumes. You can throw in frozen things like peas or corn, tinned beans, tinned lentils, chickpeas, uh, a couple of cans of tomatoes, a few cups of stock, and then just a couple of litres of water and in a huge cauldron uh, cover the vegetables. Throw in again whatever herbs you have. Parsley's great. You can put in sweet potato, normal potato, 
beetroot, <laughs> you can put in everything. You can put in everything. Are you like naming every you can vegetable under the sun? Right anything now. <laughs> in that box into the big cauldron and just cook it for a couple of hours. But it's so good because it's so tasty and it's so good for you. It feeds the gut, keeps your bowel. I mean, at the moment we're all stuck inside, so our bowels are slowing down. It's going to give you a great serve of fiber. And it's also going to give you all those vitamins, A, B, C, iron, all the things that your immune system need as well. So give a minestrone a try if you haven't before. And then when you're serving it, put on a handful of parmesan cheese, a nice uh, drizzle of olive oil. And if you've got kids and you want to make it a little bit heartier, then just boil up some pasta or some rice and Mm. throw that in as well. I was going to ask you, where do you stand on minestrone, uh, pasta and minestrone? Well, okay, so there's pasta and then there's pasta. Mm. So it's fine to put pasta in the amount that you're cooking at that point. But if you put pasta in the pot, in the big pot of minestrone, it's going to become soggy and fall apart. So make a big pot of minestrone without pasta and without rice. And then if you're serving, say, two or four people, ladle a couple of bowls full into a smaller pot and then cook the pasta in the minestrone in that smaller pot. That way you don't end up with soggy pasta in your whole container of minestrone. Also, it doesn't freeze very well, so it's better to freeze it without the pasta in it. Okay, well, that's it from us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) This special COVID-19 series of In Good Health is produced by me, Dewi Cook, and edited by the fabulous Nick King. For more information on what we've talked about in this episode, check out our show notes, And if you like us, please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon.